0: Welcome to the Pattern Podcast from KXE in London. As a church, we want to learn ways of being with Jesus, becoming like him and doing the things he did in order to see the city we love transformed. We recently recorded the insights of psychologist, Dr. Roger Bretherton at a live Pattern event. Dr. Bretherton explored the topic of exhaustion, its roots and how it can be outworked in our daily lives. We hope you find this special edition helpful and enjoy Pattern on Exhaustion. My name is Roger Bretherton. I trained as a clinical psychologist at Hull University. I now work at Lincoln University, which means I'm closely associated with the two universities most likely to be satirised in sitcoms. If you've seen Blackadder or The In Us, you will know what that's all about. Um, I am um, trained um, initially in trauma, so kind of my field of expertise. I worked in the NHS for over a decade clocked up about 10,000 hours, particularly working with people who were chronically suicidal or self-harming. So all that kind of stuff of talking people down from killing themselves, that that was the kind of sharp end of mental health that I was working in. Um, And and one of the things I found during that time is that the, the, the kind of question I was asking about the people that I was working with began to change. It went from what is wrong with this person to what's missing in this person. And in a sense, that's the kind of question that I now live with. So I I moved to Lincoln University in 2007. That was a moment when uh, a lot of my clinical work actually started to go out into the community. So I now work with all kinds of different agencies, charities, businesses, right from kind of, you know, mental health charities right up to sort of international banks and everything in between, uh, basically doing the same thing. But, but the question what's missing is really the question, what is the skill that helps us become the people we're meant to be? So very often I was saying, does this person need a bit of compassion, or do they need a bit of self-regulation, or maybe they need some wisdom, uh, or maybe uh, they they need a bit of courage, or perhaps a bit of social intelligence. And the moment you start thinking in those ways, you're beginning to think about strength psychology, which is what I now research. So I, I research strength psychology, and strength psychology just basically means what is that? What is hope? What is love? How do we define it in a way that's clear and definable and we can spot it in ourselves and others Uh, what do those things do for us so, Christians like to say it's great to be loving, but actually, if you look at the dozens and dozens of pieces of psychological research done on all the good that being a loving person does not just for you, but two, three people rippling away from you as you express that in a community. Um, and thirdly, how do we develop those things? So, what are the evidence based practices that allow us to become more loving, wiser, more grateful, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? So, that's the kind of world that I live in. Um, I'm uh, married, got two kids, um, both boys, 10 and 14, uh, the older they get the more our home resembles an episode of Friday night dinner, that's kind of where we're at. Um, I, I have a phobia against stools by the way, um, because when I, cause I have this sort of really strange sort of upper body to lower body ratio, so it means when I sit on a stool uh, my legs look really lanky, like Kermit the Frog. Um, You'd go home and people would say, how was the speaker tonight? you go, he's good, but I don't think his legs were real. And I, let, let's just stay away. We'll stay away from that. So tonight I, I'm talking about exhaustion. And um, I, I was talking to my wife last night, in bed actually, and uh, she said, what are you talking about tonight?" I said, exhaustion. She went, oh, the irony. <laughs> um, because the reality is, um, I left Lincoln quite early this morning. It's a two-hour commute from there to here. Um, I, I'll probably get back at midnight um, tonight, um, tomorrow morning I, I will be really tired, I'll probably be tired, I'm a little bit tired now as I speak to you um, and you'll know that because gradually some of my vocabulary will disappear over the course of the evening and it becomes like an episode of Blankety Blank where I can't remember what the end of the sentence is and you have to shout it out to me, that's, that's where we'll be by the end of tonight. But when I'm talking about exhaustion I'm not talking about tiredness, So so there's a difference between tiredness and exhaustion. So do you know what, I'm, I'm tired now, but I'm pretty okay with that. You know, I can be compassionate to myself, I can be curious, I can ask for your help if I get a little bit stuck. Um, I know that tomorrow morning, um, you know, (laughs) I have to get up, you know, take the kids to school um, in the morning and I've literally got home at midnight and probably got to sleep sometime after that. Um, I'm not going to be on my best, I'm not going to be full of energy, but but I'm not going to be exhausted either. I'm just going to be, okay, this is part of what we're doing, I want to do this. So the, the first thing to say in terms of how we begin to think about exhaustion is that exhaustion is not tiredness. Um, so tiredness is the normal depletion of energy we feel when we've exerted ourselves. Tiredness can even be quite pleasant, You know that tiredness that just drifts you off to sleep. Um, the sleepiness that um, I, I know a few people, you know, mid-afternoon when that mid-afternoon dip hits, curl up under their desk for 20 minutes. Do you know, believe it or not, there's psychological research done that if you sleep for 20 minutes at 3pm in the afternoon, you are then 26% more efficient for the rest of the afternoon. Um, It was all done with the US Air Force, that research. Yeah, okay. Um, I I don't think they were sleeping while flying. I think it was afterwards. Um, When I talk about exhaustion, I'm talking about that really bone-weary, just weariness that really deeply disturbs us. Um, For some people actually they experience stress as exhaustion So when when Pete was talking about stress and burnout and depression and anxiety, I mean, as he goes along, every single one of those words for me is a huge world of research. So I'm like, I don't know how I'm gonna get all that into one talk, but some people actually, sometimes you will feel exhausted because you're stressed. Like exhaustion is the way that, it's it's the part of you that's saying, I don't feel I'm up to this, I don't know if I can do it. Um, And sometimes you don't even have that thought process. You just go straight into a sense of collapse. So for some people, exhaustion is actually their response to stress when they're facing challenges. So one way of just kicking off by trying to think about the difference between tiredness and exhaustion is to think about some of the work that's been done by psychologists on energy. In other words, what keeps us vibrant? What keeps us energetic? What keeps us going? Um, And there's a psychologist in the States called Robert Thayer, Thayer, T-H-A-Y-E-R. His book is called Calm Energy. It's a few years old now, but it's still pretty good. And he said that basically human vitality can be understood on two different dimensions. And one of them is the dimension I've just talked about. It's tiredness to energy. Tiredness versus energy. In other words, how much energy have you got to put towards whatever's coming your way at this moment? So sometimes we're very energetic and vibrant and awake and alive and alert. And other times we're tired and we're sleepy and we're ready to collapse and go down and that side of things. But then there's another dimension that he talks about that's really, really important. And the other dimension he, he talks about um, is um, tension versus calm. So tension versus calm. And those two dimensions um, are, are kind of orthogonal to each other, which means they don't necessarily move together at the same time. So what that means is the ideal state of human vitality, you at your most energetic, most switched on, most alert, is calm energy. So you're energetic, you can bring your best to a situation, you can think clearly, but generally, actually, you're pretty calm and you're there and you're with it. And when we talk about exhaustion, the way I would kind of describe exhaustion is that exhaustion is tense tiredness. So when I talked about at a moment when I'm saying, I'm tired, but I'm fine with that, that's calm tiredness. I'm tired, but I'm not, it's, I'm not freaking out about it. It's not bothering me that much. Um, I know I'm going to rest soon. It's fine. But when we get tense tiredness, it means that suddenly tiredness is an issue for us. So um, I, I was just listening to someone speak a minute ago when we were in our group and they were talking about a moment when they were really kind of manic and tense but they were absolutely knackered at the same time. Tense tiredness, that's, that's what was going on for them in that moment. And the problem for some of us is that we have mistaken tension for energy. So, you know, ever had one of those moments where you've drunk too much coffee and you're lying in bed and your body feels tired, but, you know, you're still kind of shaking away. It's like your mind is alive, but basically you just can't stop. Um, I had a friend at university um, who um, had to revise several nights in a row because he'd been a bit lazy before his exams, and so he took a load of caffeine pills over the period of a couple of days. And um, he said he had this weirdest experience of his body being absolutely dead and his mind whirring away like crazy. And so if we're going to define exhaustion the way I'd like to define it, and there's many, many different ways of getting at it, but this is kind of my favourite definition for tonight, would be to talk about it as tense Tiredness tiredness, in, in essence where you can't rest. That, that's kind of the issue. That, that's what it feels like. I'm tired but I don't feel good about that. Um, and it's like uh, kind of my body is still going in all kinds of different ways. So um, wh- what do we do with that? Well, if that's kind of where you're at um, and you can't be there for that long, so actually after a while, all kinds of depletion starts to happen. Um, You'll notice it in your body in all kinds of different ways. Um, You'll notice it in your concentration if you're not careful. What what do we do when we're in that state? So the first thing I'd say is that the pain of exhaustion often lies in self-criticism. So it lies in the piece, not just that I'm tired, but that I'm exhausted uh, and and I'm kind of judging myself for it. Like sometimes often you'll find that your mind goes wild trying to work out, why do I feel like this? What's going on? Um, Should I do this? You're kind of thinking of solutions. There's this kind of impatience that comes with it. Uh, We kind of get frustrated looking for some kind of immediate quick fix, some immediate answer. And that's why it's so tempting in those moments to jump into all our kind of worst habits, whatever those addictive compulsive qualities happen to be, whether it's food, or various kind of pleasures or uh, alcohol or for some people to be kind of recreational drug use. It's like, I need to do something to kind of help me with this in some way. And the thing about exhaustion is that generally, it's impervious to impatience. So it's impervious to us going, I'm gonna solve this quick and fast and it's gonna happen. Um, it actually requires primarily to begin in with actually a bit of kind of reflection and some compassion and to begin with some noticing. What's going on inside me at this moment? Now the interesting thing about exhaustion is that it's not a very articulate state so one of the things that I, I do in uh, psychotherapy is quite often people will come and they'll be feeling a particular way and they will focus on how they feel and they will talk out of that state. This is what my sadness feels like. This is what my stress feels like. This is where my anxiety is. This is where my excitement is. This is where how I feel when I'm angry or envious or loving or you know whatever. People, they talk out of those kind of inner states. But the interesting thing about exhaustion is that very often when we reflect on it, it's not particularly articulate. It doesn't really tell us a lot because it can't rest on anything. Our mind is tense and going everywhere and we don't feel we've got the energy to really kind of pull anything out of it. So quite often if you do stop and you reflect on exhaustion, all you really get is the message, I feel exhausted. In the same way that if you're addicted to alcohol and you really want to drink, all your body says to you is, I really want to drink. It's, like it's one of those kind of states. I don't feel good where I am. Can't necessarily put it into words in any good way. And therefore, from a psychological point of view, exhaustion, it isn't so much a state to be fixed. Immediately, it's very hard to fix it quickly. Uh, but if that's the state you're in, it, it's a signal to be recognised. Back in the 80s, people used to talk about stress, for example, as an alarm bell that tells you that something somewhere somehow is going wrong in your life that needs attention. In a sense, exhaustion is exactly that. It's kind of like, here's the alarm bell. The alarm bell isn't a particularly sophisticated message. It's simply saying somewhere, somehow, something needs to change. Whether or not that can be changed, you don't necessarily know, but it's basically saying something doesn't feel right here. Something needs to be different. And it's usually a sign that something somewhere is out of balance. And let me just say, therefore, that when you get that message, the initial response, the best response, is is two things. I I have a student at the moment, a research student, who's doing a piece of research in which she's looking at what happens when we use self-compassion and curiosity. And basically one of the things she's finding is that the best response to many of the difficulties that come our way to begin with is self-compassion. You're not alone. Other human beings have been in this situation before. You're not some kind of freak. You're not letting lots of people down because you feel exhausted. You probably feel like that, but you have your limits too. So self-compassion says, you know, you belong to the human race. That's what compassion does for us. It reintegrates us back into the human race. And then secondly, a a, a kind of curious attitude. And curiosity effectively... um, It doesn't judge things as right or wrong, good or bad, success or failure. It just says, "I, I wonder what else is here? I wonder what this is about? Let's do some exploring, let's do some reflecting, let's think. It's quite happy with uncertainty. So you know how worry takes uncertainty and makes it really bad? Curiosity does the opposite. It takes uncertainty and it says, uncertainty is okay. Let's follow the questions. Where might this lead? Who could I learn from? Where do I need to go to? And the reason curiosity is like that is, is it's open-ended. You don't necessarily have answers to any of those questions. But if you're compassionate and you're curious, uh, with your exhaustion, that might be the best place to begin. So let, let's just say you're in a season of exhaustion, and. Um, Whatever's going on, you just can't get out of it. Now, I I tend to find occasionally, I I do find myself in the place of exhaustion, um, and I'll I'll talk about that um, a little bit more in a moment. But um, I tend to find that for me, exhaustion is a sort of seasonal thing. It's something that arrives, and I always listen to it as a message. Um, so quite, quite early on um, in the new year um, I went back to work in January and I had a whole series of stuff I had to do and I started to feel pretty low and exhausted about it and in that sort of weary way and I just came and okay so here's the message, I'm exhausted, That, that I've, I've got to listen to that, it's important, I've got to be curious about what that's about. And as I began to reflect and just sit with it and wonder um, what I discovered is actually what had happened was just before Christmas um, a whole pile of stuff had landed on my desk that I had to do that I didn't really want to do and actually what was going on is that something that was really, really important to me had just gone missing in the process. It's almost like you know, I was operating robotically in my workplace but my soul had just gone out of it. And so the question I had to follow was really what matters to me and how do I make sure there's more of that in what I'm doing as I go along. So when you find yourself in those moments of exhaustion, it's worth thinking about um, what we should do with those seasons. So the first thing I would say is that it's not, sometimes we think exhaustion will come through failure or bad things happen or things are hard, uh, but actually it's the things that excite us actually that often exhaust us. Um, So for some people, this will be the dark side of your vocation. You really feel called to what you're doing. You really feel it's really important to you. Uh, vocation sometimes for some people would just be a purely secular thing. It means this has really important social impact and it really matters. Um, and sometimes the dark side of that is workaholism. You feel like you have to do more and more and more and more. Uh, and if you work for a big organisation, you know that organisations just aren't good at telling you when you've done enough. You know, They always want more, more and more uh, because that's the way organisations work. And some psychologists, when it comes to that kind of idea of, um, kind of vocation, have talked about our passions. So there's a, a really famous psychologist called uh, Robert Valeron, he's uh, French-Canadian, and uh, Valeron has this lovely idea where he says that basically most people have passions, things you care about, things you will work hard for, things that really matter for you, and things that probably actually to some extent your identity is linked to. You know, that, it's so important to you that it really matters. And for some people that is in your workplace and for other people it's not in your workplace, but it's something there that you're deeply committed to. But he's done this really, really fascinating research. He's done it um, in sort of high-level leaders. He's done it in athletes and sports people, um, in which he looks at um, when passion does people harm and when it does them good. And he ends up with this sort of ju- what he calls the dualistic model of passion. And um, he says that the bad passion, if you like, is what he calls obsessive passion. An obsessive passion is basically where we feel absolutely, totally compelled to do something to the expense of absolutely everything else. So one of the things I've uh, done over the last few years is I've sort of been working with a few sort of elite sports people and beginning to talk to them, particularly if they experience sort of anxiety and burnout and things like that. And one of the things I found is that quite often when they find themselves in their state, you discover that actually whatever their sport is, is the only thing they've ever learned to do. You know, from the age of you know, 10 or 12, or sometimes even younger, that's been their thing, just one thing. So they never had you know, scrappy little jobs, they, some of them have never had a, a decent partner, some of them never had kind of all these kind of experiences of life that actually give life balance and help and things like that. So it's like their sport, their thing, has become their obsessive passion. I've met people in the workplace who are like this. Um, I, I've worked with city traders, who kind of sit there and um, you know when they're trading you know they've got all the information coming in and they're like a kind of rat in box pressing a lever and it's like this really really exciting thing, and they're absolutely obsessive about it and then when it's done they're exhausted they go home and they dream of one day giving this up making enough money in the bank to make it secure for them to leave their work and go somewhere else. Um, I've spoke to people in creative industries, whether they're kind of performers or writers uh, or artists, and they have these huge highs and lows when they obsess on doing their thing and then they make it happen and it's a huge boom. And then when it's over, they're kind of exhausted and they don't know what else is around. And one of the things that Robert Valeron says is that that kind of obsessive passion really doesn't do us any good. It feels necessary. If you're in that, I'm not judging you. Let's bring curiosity, let's bring kindness to that. But in the end, it ultimately wears us out. It's unsustainable. We can't keep doing it. And he compares that to what he calls harmonious passion. And harmonious passion is where you keep on to those things that you care about, that you work for, that you identify with, but you line those things up against all the other necessary things in life that give you balance, that give you a sense of meaning, that you hold on to your relationships. Do you make sure that the the meaning and your significance is deeper than just your daily performance? Otherwise, you end up feeling like your value is only as much as how great your latest performance was. And he calls this harmonious passion. And he has some really, really lovely examples of this. One of his examples is he he does this study of what he calls um, five-star no-point players in, in basketball. And he says they're five-star players because any team these players play for does better, is more likely to win. But they never ever score a point. And he says, and what, the reason for that is because these are the players who basically, they bring their passion for the game, but the passion isn't just about them doing well, being elite. How, how many teams do I have for like one amazing elite player who basically is just an absolute nightmare to manage and never performs as well as they could do because they don't know how to invest in the team around them. He says these players actually, they may not, shine in any way. But because they are there, everybody around them does well. And the other thing that's really fascinating about it is that those players, these kind of people who manage their passions harmoniously, actually feel loads better. There's all kinds of mental health positive outcomes that result from for them and around them because they're saying, this isn't just about me in the straight line doing well, it's about me and all the other things that matter as well, my relationships, the meaning, the significance, having time off, my family, they have all these other things that are there too and that are really good. So so that's kind of one of the ways of thinking about, you know, how can we begin to think about exhaustion is think about where where have you got obsessive and, and where's things out of balance? What else is it that you need to invest in? that quite often when you're obsessive, it doesn't look particularly attractive to invest in, but it might be relationship, it might be time off, um, it might be hobbies you've enjoyed that you've given up because you've got stuck pursuing something. It could even be the things you loved doing when you were a child. Arts, crafts, adventure, camping, who knows what it is, but things that really, really meant something to you once, but which you've given up and look back on some of those things. The the other thing um, that can sometimes come with exhaustion is, as I said earlier, exhaustion doesn't always come through disappointment and disillusionment and failure. It sometimes comes through success. So um, if you are successful at what you do, over time, your opportunities to express that proliferate. They just get more and more and more and more until eventually, if you're not careful, you have more opportunities than you know what to do with. Um, This will apply to some of you more than others, but it's basically if over time you have just kept going at it, before you know it you are overwhelmed with the demands on your time. Um, Some jobs as well, like performance, have an addictive quality to them anyway and that's one of their uh, problems, but but it's kind of worth beginning to think about that in that success orientation, how do I be a success? How do I make this next goal? How do I achieve? What's on my to-do list? Um, Just remember that today's compulsivity could be tomorrow's collapse. So if you're operating on the compulsive and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, um, that's a kind of danger sign sooner or later because it's the rewards of those those kind of successes that are driving you. So what I'd recommend for those kind of people, if that's you, I'd say if you love your to-do list and everything's about the to-do list and you just chase it like you wouldn't believe, alongside your to-do list, create a to-be list. And the to to be list is the list that says, not only have I got these things to do, but here's the wonderful qualities in me that those things to do will express. This one's going to express my wisdom as I decide whether to do this or that. This one's going to express my creativity as I design a presentation for the people. This one's going to express my persistence because I'm going to need to persist because uh, I don't want to do it and I'm going to have to really get at it. And really begin to think about what are the good qualities of you that you then bring to that thing so that your soul doesn't go missing in the process of pursuing the to-do list. And then, if if we're going to think about the kind of general changes we're going to make in our life around exhaustion, I I would say just be attentive to anything that seems impulsive or compulsive or addictive. So anything that feels like it's an absolute necessity and you can't say no to it, even if inside you're not really feeling it, you're not not really into it. Uh, Be really, really clear about those things. Um, and and sometimes well this means sort of building a better relationship to some of the things that become compulsive for us so uh, for some people this is food um, and people can go in so many different directions with this so I know I'm not going to address everybody in the room but if I were to come up with a a kind of a, a sort of way of thinking about this I would say feed yourself as lovingly as you would feed someone in your life who you love So feed yourself as lovingly as you would feed someone in your life you would love. So if that means um, that you cook almost romantically for yourself if you live alone or for the people who you live in the house have actually put care into the preparation and the thoughtfulness and the freshness and the variety of the food you eat. Make it good, make it uh, full of nutrients and all that kind of thing. Another area of uh, compulsivity for some people will be uh, obviously the area of tech. Phones and all, all that side of things, screens, uh, social media, etc. And um, I, I know kind of Pete and Pat and KX talk quite a bit about how to relate to those kind of things. Uh, but I'd recommend that, that you do a tech detox. At least I, it feels like a mild thing to say, at least do it once a year. You know, so maybe for a month, a year, say, okay, this month just purely the bare essentials. It might, might be a time when you're on holiday, you go camping, no Wi-Fi, uh, somewhere where there's no 4G, um, etc. And you just say, this is the moment where actually that's down and I'm back to reading paper and maybe my phone's just on emergency contact only or something like that. But actually beginning to detox us off those things, stops us being exhausted by the addictive qualities that are constantly firing up our minds. And then when it comes to sleep, this is the other thing. So sleep is really, really interesting. So one of the things that actually leads to poor quality sleep that most people don't realise um, is actually worry. So if you spend a lot of time of your day wondering about what might go wrong and how things might be damaged and what's going to be painful and seeing all the worst things that are going to happen, effectively, when you go to bed, you have a whole series of loose ends knocking back in your head. And very often sleep, and particularly dreamful sleep, is the moment where your mind is kind of sorting out all that information, trying to get it all back into its filing cabinets again for the next day. And the more loose ends you go to bed with, the more, they, you know, the more work it has to do. And interestingly, dreamful sleep is the least restful of the phase of sleep. So it means that you then kind of wake up feeling exhausted and a bit distressed, and it will start off all over again. So one of the ways to begin to think about this is is actually to begin to think about how you close some of the loops in your mind that you've opened up during the day. Uh, So some people um, in this will sort of use mindfulness, one way of doing it is to think about actually what are the loose ends, particularly if you find yourself in a leadership position. So if you're kind of at work where you're having to carry a lot of responsibility, effectively what that means is at work you never really get to close the loop at the end of the day because if you're in leadership you just carry these sort of long story arcs of projects which almost the definition of leadership is not being able to finish something in a day because you're just carrying it all the way through these kind of long arcs. And so one of the things to do is is firstly just to recognise that, recognize the unfinished qualities of that. Um, I, and uh, one, of the, one of the lovely things about mindfulness well, or sort of various Christian versions of it as well, personally I, I love the kind of notion of center in prayer, which is a moment where you can you focus on the presence of God and you allow God to be there. Um, and what, what those things get you to practice is they get to practice just giving up thoughts. So not feeling like they have to be completed in order to be okay. Um, One of the world's experts in mindfulness, uh, Mark Williams, he says, in mindfulness what happens is a thought occurs and instead of proliferating it, you just let it run into the sound and then it's gone. And then the next one comes and you do the same with that. Mindfulness is the practice of letting things go in that way so that you don't have this compulsive need to complete things in that way. Another thing to think about... um, in all of this as well, is, is to recognise that some of the things that will drive you, at times, will be the pain of saying no. So begin to recognise that there will be things you're saying yes to, they could be social events, they could be things at work, they could be projects, they could be offers that people throw you away, um, and you're saying yes, and yet inside you're kind of feeling like, you know, I don't know why I'm saying yes to this. And it's really, really beginning, you know, it's really, really worth kind of thinking about that behind your inactivity, so the fear of not doing that is is very often kind of fear and sadness. It's kind of, I'm going to miss out, I'm scared if I don't take this opportunity, I'll be left behind. Um, I'm worried that I won't get promotion um, I won't distinguish myself in my area You know, I have all these kind of different things which basically are kind of really bad outcomes if we don't pursue the kind of all the opportunities that are coming our way and so sometimes actually the, the, the pain of saying no is actually just enduring some of the sadness or the loss or the mourning that comes when we say no to something that kind of might have been attractive but probably isn't for us and would overextend us Um, I learned this really, really powerfully this year. Um, uh, In in the last year, in May, my, my father died really, really suddenly and unexpectedly. Just out of nowhere, I thought I had another 20 years left with him, went to bed, had a heart attack, gone and um, so in May I have to go home to Manchester where I I was from originally and looking after my mum and dealing with the funeral and all this kind of thing and and what was fascinating about that for me you know, I'm a psychologist I'm sort of observing myself in the process of grief I've read the books here I go oh yes, I'm working through to the pain of grief I'm relocating the memory of the deceased you know, working through through the tasks Oh, and now I'm back again Oh, I'm a bit dysfunctional there you know, so yeah, you can imagine it was great I was really enjoying myself um and um one of the things that happened to me in that moment is that the front that I often need, even to do something like this, you know, you just need a little bit of, yes, I can do that, okay, let's go, let's make this happen, I was just gone. Just just couldn't sort of raise myself to do things that seemed a bit risky or a bit hard or whatever. And so I literally had to go through my diary and just cancel like seven, eight. Some of them were really, really high profile stuff, high-paying things. And I was just like, you know, I'm just not up for it. Um, There was literally only one thing that I kept, and I don't even know why I kept it. I just felt for some reason, now I think I can do that one. Um, And the weird thing was that in in that moment of grief when I was feeling sad anyway, I found that, that the sadness of saying no to things just didn't seem to matter anymore. And then for about three or four months, even though I was in this kind of pretty painful period of time, I had the most amazing feeling of just liberation and kindness to myself and enjoyment of life and connection with other people because whatever that thing was that said compulsively you've got to do this and this and this and this just wasn't there for a while and um, so now actually I'm I'm sort of revisiting that time in my head and I'm beginning to say um, go back to how you felt back then and what would you say yes and no to now You know, when it gets right down to what really matters in the long term what would you say yes to and what would you say no to reconnect with that So recognising the pain of saying no. So finally, how do we slow down? I I said to you, when Pete asked me to do that, I said I've got no time to prep, so this is just going to be a jumble of ideas, so I hope this is okay. It's like throwing out all these different bits of psychology for you. So, So the first thing to do, I think, when you feel exhausted is it's worth spotting, if you have distorted the natural human cycle of action. So the natural human cycle of action is this. It's that you plan something, you do it, you enjoy, or you evaluate the results of what you've done. Out of that kind of rest comes another plan, which leads to other things you do, which leads back to you know, enjoying it, etc. I have to say that, that many of our workplaces actually intentionally interrupt that cycle and don't help us that much, but nevertheless, in the ideal world, that's, that's what we do. Now, if you're a very achievement-focused person, what happens is this, is that the bit where you're nourished and you enjoy what you've done completely goes missing, and so what you do is you plan, you do, you plan, you do, plan, do, plan, do, plan, do, go on holiday, plan, 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 come back, do, 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 plan, do, plan, do, plan, do, plan, do. off you go. Um, and the way some psychologists would say, they would say that that sort of compulsivity, and I'm an achievement-based person, so it's just as much of a threat to me as anybody else. Some people, some people call it the obsessive personality. And... Um, if you've got that kind of achievement or orientation, what it's driven by is what psychologists will call an, a nourishment barrier. It's the inability to take nourishment and enjoy the, what's come your way in life, the inability to savour, to enjoy with gratitude the outcome of the things that you're doing. That, that's kind of one of the things that um, kind of makes it work. And it's hard to, to kind of deal with that because when we're in that, we just feel like it's totally necessary. But if you want to make a few small steps towards beginning to be nourished by the activity that you have in day-to-day life, it's a really simple way to do it. It's literally, as you're going to bed tonight, just have a think about some of the wonderful things that came your way today that you didn't notice and just take half a minute, one minute just to reflect and remember them. You could be grateful. Some psychologists call it savouring. Take a moment just to remember what it was like. And usually they're quite small things. They're like the smile from someone at work that, that touched you. Uh, maybe, um, to, like if I was to think of today, I had a meeting and I, I walked out of one building that I'd been stuck in for quite a few hours and I just walked out into Piccadilly Circus and it was all busy and the air was quite cool. And I just felt like this moment of real liberation. It was absolutely lovely. Um, it's not big, is it? But if I just kind of sit with that, I'm just allowing life to nourish me, that kind of source of life to be with me. And then the other thing related to that is it's worth noticing if there are places where you have confused achievement with being loved. So sometimes what has happened to us somewhere over the course of our lives, we've kind of inherited this idea that somehow if we achieve and we do well and we keep certain rules, then we will be loved and therefore we have to kind of keep that policy of action going in order to function in the world. Um, and one of, one of the ways to kind of get at that um, is firstly to notice when achievement ultimately fails to satisfy you. It, when, when I wrote my first book, I, I'd been working on it for years and years and years. It was really important to me. Every moment along the way, it was a huge celebration. The publisher brought 500 of my books into my office, and I just look at them, and I just had this moment of absolute sort of Depression and I really had to reflect on what is this about I've got there, there's a, there's a preacher called Rabbi Zacharias and one of the things he says is he says the emptiest moment in life is when you achieve that which you thought would deliver the ultimate and you find it wanting and that was kind of the moment I've had the thing is, it's like it's a Christian book, I'm not supposed to feel this way about these kind of things and, um, I, and the, the kind of sense I made of it is actually do you know what really mattered to me, it was the process of reading it, or, of writing it sorry Uh, and and the reaction that people had when they started reading. That's actually what I wanted. It wasn't the thing itself. The thing was nothing, really. Uh, It was when I saw one of my colleagues at work walking down the road reading it nearly crashing into a lamppost. I knew I'd made it. That's that's what I was after. Um, And so you begin to notice when things don't ultimately satisfy, and that's when you start to think about where are the places that do energize me? Where the places that I really feel alive that feel most naturally and most wholly me, because those are probably the clues. That's the radar going off saying this is where you want to concentrate your energy, even if the rules don't tell you that's where you should be concentrating. Um, and sometimes one of the things that can get in the way of us doing that is sometimes if if we've sort of prized performance, you know, doing well and performing, instead of actually enjoying the energy, the energy that comes from contact with other people. Um, I, I know for me, for example, I quite enjoy, you know, I'm a bit of a drama queen, I quite like a bit of a performance and lecture and all that kind of stuff, but I know that what will really energise me and what has already energised me tonight was just talking to people individually sat in my seat. They're just like, hi, how are you doing? What are you up to? You know, that's actually the bit I'm going to take away that will nourish me. Um, this is just kind of just giving out and trying to understand things a little bit and get somewhere. And... Um, a few years back when I was in uh, therapy myself, so as part of my training, I, I had to go through four years of therapy. Um, I was actually in therapy before that, just for the fun of it, because I needed it. Um, but, um, and as part of that therapy, I started to reflect on this notion of the, the way in which sometimes the world has been divided into performers and audiences. Yeah. if you ever feel this this sense that it's up to me to be something in order for the people to kind of receive me and be okay with it um, and just spontaneously I found myself writing this parable that I called the parable of the two actors mm-hmm. and, and basically it starts with an actor on a stage it's a bit like this and uh, it's a he in the parable, he's acting away, trying to get, uh, you know, impress the audience around him. And the audience is silent, and the more silent the audience are, the more he performs, the more crazy his moves become. And eventually, kind of the lights go up, and you realize there's actually no audience there. There's just another stage. And on that stage, it's another person acting, trying to get a response out of him. And so they act wildly at each other, and eventually they're both completely collapse in exhaustion. And kind of the thing that the parable was trying to get at is, If life is a performance rather than a connection, it will always ultimately exhaust us. So, if you're kind of performing for other people to try and get approval, attention, etc., I'm not judging you. You're not going to stop that overnight, but it's really worth bringing some curiosity to yeah, but when are the moments that really energize you rather than deplete you? And then finally, related to that, reflect on where perhaps you've lost yourself along the way. So sometimes when you feel exhausted, what's really happened is that we've dismissed some gentle but essential part of us in the name of being successful. Um, Some big organisations, including churches at times, actually make that deal with us. They say, this bit of you isn't welcome in the name of the objectives of this organisation. You know, this is where we're going. Um, so one of my favourite questions to ask people in the workplace is often this, is before all the paperwork got you down and before the politics of the organisation drove you around the bend, what was the hope that got you into this game in the first place? I asked teachers, I asked nurses, I asked doctors, uh, I even sometimes asked you know, people in finance and what they hoped to do with what they got, I asked performers, what, what was it that got you in there? And if you can reconnect with that, probably that's where your life is going to be. One of my favourite sayings, and I'll just end with this, is that um, there's a body psychologist called Pat Ogden, and one of the things she says is she says, the answer to fatigue isn't rest. The answer to fatigue is wholeheartedness. The answer to fatigue is where can you put your whole self into something and thereby find energy in it? podcast if you'd like to explore more spirit-filled patterns of living head over to pattern.org.uk